going to pick up where we left off uh, last week in dealing um, with sort of the, the second collection of the attributes of God in uh, paragraph one. <clears throat> and we are almost done with this paragraph. I was thinking about that today. <laughs> um, we, we started on most loving last week and almost finished that out. Uh, so we will uh, tonight try to accomplish most loving, gracious, merciful, and long-suffering. So we'll see how we do. Um, what, are the, what are the three aspects of God's love that we spoke of um, last week, if you were here? I guess that's uh, the barbers and... Uh, Christina and Wendy. <laughs> and Ray, oh, Raven was here. Oh, you were in the nursery. Okay, well. Okay, his benevolence first. What? What is, uh, how is God, um, or what type of love is benevolence? What, who is that shown to and what does it entail? Okay. Yeah, that's good. The benevolence of God is God's love for all men, and it is shown basically in the fact that um, he um, uh, that he doesn't just um, kind of wipe wipe us out. <laughs> that all mankind um, is um, allowed to continue to live, even though um, their sin is uh, our sin is an abomination to God. That He sustains us in life and allows us another day to, le- to live. So that's his benevolence in, uh, within his love. We also speak of God's beneficence. What is that? Who is that to? Anyone remember? It's not in your notes. Sorry, you don't have these notes yet, I don't think. Oh. <laughs> Trying to find them. His beneficence. Once again, this is God's love toward um, toward all men, toward all of creation, really. And this is God actually doing something um, to express His love. He often expresses uh, beneficence in deeds of kindness. So, um, whereas benevolence is sort of a a love toward all men in simply allowing us to continue in life, sustaining life. Beneficence is his actually doing something. So the example we have in the scriptures is when Jesus says that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, that while a Christian farmer enjoys great communion with God and he has, um, he has relationship with God eternally, um, his crops have no distinct advantage over the crops of his non-believing neighbor. Um, so this is beneficence. Yeah, I would say, yeah, we're going to talk about common grace, but as, um, as an aspect of God's love, beneficence probably fits the category a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, we spoke of God's love of complacency. Not complacent as we often think of it, just sort of not caring, quite the opposite, actually. Uh, God's love for whom? Yeah, for his elect, for his redeemed people. Um, And this is, it's complacency because he contemplates his children, his people, uh, over and above others. So, remember, we spoke about God's love In this regard, being a special love that God shows that he doesn't show to others. And we sort of uh, discussed in many ways that people want to reject this idea that God loves some people uh, more than he loves others. Um, But if we simply take it in uh, the human realm and we think of the analogy that the Bible continues to make, um, throughout about Jesus' relationship to the church, what is the picture that is drawn? Jesus and his, yeah, marriage. It's a marriage picture. Jesus and his bride. Um, so, like I said last week, if I love my neighbor's wife the same as I love my wife, uh, things probably aren't going to go so well. 
Um, we might have a little scuffle outside, I'm guessing. Um, and the same as if I were to love my children just the same as I love your children. Um, that's no real genuine uh, love toward anyone uh, on any level. Um, <clears throat> so we ourselves, uh, in reflecting the image of God, um, express various types of love toward different kinds of people. And so God does uh, the very same thing at um, a much higher level. Um, indeed, the, the very picture of Ephesians 5, as uh, Paul is explaining a husband's uh, relationship to his wife and her to her husband, uh, the picture that's drawn there is Jesus loving his bride in a special way with a love that is not displayed in other, any other relationship. So is it, uh, is it technically um, okay to tell people that God loves them when they are not uh, in relationship to him in a saving way? Um, well, in a, uh, yes, God does love them, but it is a, uh, a very different love than is generally assumed when that language is used. It's a general love for uh, what God has created in his image. Not them as an individual for who they are and what they are. Uh, And so when you tell someone God loves you, the assumption when they don't have any theological categories to place that in, uh, they're non-believers, they love themselves just as much as they assume God loves them. Um, So we have to be careful with that language because uh, it conveys something that's not necessarily true. Um, because the Bible also speaks of his of God's uh, hatred for sin and um, that he, um, he is against evildoers um, and wrongdoers and that he is storing up wrath for them. Um, so uh, in, a, in a general sense, yes, God does love all people uh, that he has created, but he loves in them what he has created them to be, namely image bearers of himself. Um, so, of course, in 21st century evangelicalism, particularly in America, uh, the love of God has been, uh, in the words of one writer, sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Of course, God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute, or at least as nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay, God loves you, and God loves me. That was D.A. Carson's description of what people think when we say, God loves you. But if we are to rightly maintain the doctrine of God's simplicity, we have to understand that it can't be removed from all of his other um, attributes, and we can't emphasize his love above everything else, which tends to happen. Most often when you talk to people about God, what are you going to, you're going to hear about the love of God. People don't want to talk about his wrath and his justice, or his omnipotence, or his immutability, uh, these, uh, these categories that are by and large lost on most people, uh, because we just want a big cuddly teddy bear in the sky. Uh, he loves me. What's What's so bad about that? Um, And so God's love would, uh, we have to think of it in this way, God's love would not be love if it did not contain his anger, his wrath, and his judgment of sin. I'll explain that. The most prominent display of God's love is found where? On the cross. Is that what you said, Christina? You got that right? Okay, you can say it out loud. I won't embarrass you publicly. (laughs) If God's love did not contain his anger, his wrath, and his judgment of sin, then the cross would have never happened. Um, And so, if God's love can trump all of his other moral attributes, then the cross represents the cruelest waste in all of human history. Um, If God's love did not rest equally with his justice and displayed in his pouring out of his wrath, it was absolutely unnecessary and unequivocally harsh uh, that he would crush Jesus. Um, A great quote here I want to share. 
as he deals with what everyone wants to turn to, and that is the statement in 1 John that, John, uh, that God is love. If the classic um, metaphor, God is love, is not grounded and thereby interpreted by means of the harsh and demanding reality of the message and ministry, the cross and resurrection of the unsubstitutable Jesus, who as the Christ disclosed God's face turned toward us as love, then Christians may be tempted to sentimentalize the metaphor by reversing it into love is God. But this great reversal on inner Christian terms is hermeneutically impossible. God is love. This identity of God the Christian experiences in and through the history of God's actions and self-disclosure as the God who is love in Jesus Christ, the parable and face of God. So we can certainly say that all of mankind is abundantly privileged to re- be recipients of the love of God on some level. Um, but Christians in particular are all the more privileged because of the saving nature of God's love toward us and um, that we are informed of who God is and we have a great desire to know more of God and to understand his attributes and how they function and how his promises play out uh, throughout redemptive history. All of these things are benefits toward the believer um, because of the love of God toward us and so we ought to display um, great thankfulness for that. So uh, what... uh, I think I was mentioned this to Christina earlier uh, today. Um, several weeks back, I, um, I went to a workshop, and uh, the speaker there had mentioned, um, if you look at all the history of the Christian church over the last 2,000 years, any time liberalism has come into the church, it has entered through the practice of evangelism. Which I thought was very interesting, so I thought about it, and I started to connect the dots throughout history, and said, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, because when you have a mentality that, kind of a mixture here of things, um, that we can just simply convince and coerce men to believe in God, and most of all, that God's highest and greatest attribute above all others is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, what, is going to, what is the church going to be made into? What is the church going to become? What do you say? What, hap- what, what happens to our worship service? What happens to our, what's that? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, yeah, it's marketing, it's consumer driven. What's that? Very man-centered. And so, what does the Bible say? When we gather for worship, what is, what is going on? No, in our, in, well, hopefully our church. In uh, the church, what has God prescribed in his, in his word that is supposed to be going on when we gather? Okay, so we're worshiping God. Who does that? Do non-believers worship God? No. We come together as believers, uniting our lives and our hearts together to bring worship to the one true and living God. And we commune with him through the means of grace that he's given us. Those means by which his grace is shown to us. The preaching of the word, our prayers, our singing together, our taking of the Lord's Supper, our participating in the baptisms. Um, All of these things are the means that God has given to whom? To his people, that we would participate with him. So the worship service of the church as we gather corporately together is not about us standing up and saying, you who do not know Christ and do not love Christ, um, that's okay because God loves you and he just wants you to do whatever. Walk down to the front of the church and say a prayer so I can, so uh, we can, another notch on our belt that we got one more. Um, this is all because One, because of a low view of God and his sovereignty, but even more so 
because this attribute of God's love has been removed from his overall nature as God. And so his simplicity is denied outright, and um, uh, this one thing is raised to a level where, I kid you not, and I can point you in the right direction if you want to see it, you will hear pastors say, we don't meet for the benefit of believers, we meet for non-believers. And so we want as many of those people to come in here as possible. Now, I'm certainly not against a non-believer coming and hearing the gospel preached, uh, but you often, I don't know if you ever notice, when I preach, I am saying we and us, referring to believers, because we're gathered as God's people, not as goats, but sheep, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> So it's really important that we understand the love of God in its proper context in relationship to all of his attributes, lest we deny the simplicity of God and highlight something that is going to lead us down a road of complete, a complete denial of what God has commanded of his church. So any thoughts on the love of God uh, from last week or this week before we press on? Love, yeah. I'm sure they would be very clear to a non believer what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because he created you. Yeah. Sure. Sure. It's, it's just, it's reckless that we would go out into the world and just have this blanket statement. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, Romans 9 tells me that the wonderful plan that God has for some people is that they become vessels of his wrath, that he will be glorified through their destruction. I don't know that I'd be announcing that as a wonderful plan for your life. Now, it's a just and right plan that God has determined. Um, and, uh, you know, in his wisdom, he's determined who that is and why that is. Um, and we have a hard time with that, I agree, uh, with that sentiment. But, nevertheless, it is in God's wisdom. And so we have to be very careful that we not just blanket this uh, community with uh, statements like that. for him, yes. Emotional, yeah. Everything else that the Bible says God is So it's, yeah. And you hit on probably the major aspect for carnal man is that love is defined very differently. So if I don't feel love or if this um, action of God is not displayed in the way that I assume to be loving, then it's not love. Yeah. Sure. If you, if you look at the ultimate definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that one has for another, um, or really in the context of us for each other within the church, but there's not one description that Paul gives in there that is emotional. Every one of them is, um, is an act toward another. 
Uh, and that is a very important element to re- be reminded of uh, in our relationships to one another, too. That God's love toward us is not uh, to have us kind of, you know, feel warm and gooey inside um, because I get to say God loves me. Um, now, it is something that we innately delight in and enjoy, and it moves us emotionally as we consider the love of God. But um, emotion is not an element of, uh, of love in that regard. It is an, an acting out of something. Um, so, again, I think if we always kept in mind the greatest display of God's love is pouring his wrath out on his son, then we will always remember uh, the importance of keeping those elements of God's attributes together, uh, that they not be divorced. Any other thoughts on that? All right, well, we'll push on. Um, that God is um, most gracious. Most gracious. And um, I will will not spend a great deal of time on this because, again, this is something that will come up later in the confession as we speak of um, uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, in more detail. Obviously, grace is at the heart of that, but um, we do want to... Look at it as an attribute of God. Um, The grace of God shows him to be unique from all of the false gods of the world. Um, While the God of man, the gods that man has created, um, requires specific works to be performed that man may merit and attain the love and favor of their God, the God of the Bible is the only God throughout the history of mankind that I know of, that shows grace, which, by definition, is a favor that is unmerited and unattainable by any work whatsoever that one can do. I don't know of any um, man-made God um, throughout the history of the world that man has created by which uh, their God is one who shows grace. They all require some form of work. Um, because we know in our own hearts that our internal desire toward God is not to receive his grace, but to want to return work in order to receive his favor. We struggle with that all the time. Um, So certainly if we're going to create our own God, uh, it's going to be a God who is a slave driver and who demands a great deal from his people. Uh, But grace is the unmerited goodness um, of God, and um, as we talk, you know, this is this is part of the difficulty in dealing with the doctrine of God. These things are so interrelated. But really, uh, theologians, uh, particularly the Puritans, would speak of the goodness of God, and then under the goodness of God, they speak of God's love, His grace, His mercy, His long suffering or patience. All of these are sort of um, categories within His goodness, but. Um, <coughs> Grace is the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. Um, So while the grace of God is most often um, thought and spoken of in terms of his relationship to mankind in salvation, and some would argue that's the only way that we should speak of grace, I disagree with that, Um, it is an essential attribute of God's Um, eternal moral character that we see throughout the scriptures. So think, you know, what is is the false statement that people sometimes make about God in the Old Testament versus God in the New Testament? Okay, that in the Old Testament, all we see is this God of vengeance and wrath, and he's like a an old codger who just wants to smite everybody. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes along and all of the sheep and doves follow him around and the children love him. And, um, and so this is the display of grace. And so we have uh, the God of judgment and the God of grace. Um, that's what the pictures show us anyway. Um, but grace is displayed, I believe, more prominently in the Old Testament than most people have ever taken the time to recognize um, in many different forms, uh, but even very explicitly. Consider Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
This is where um, the Lord passes before Moses as he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. And we read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So I just wanted to point out to you, if you look at your confession, the statement, God is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Where does that statement come from? Directly out of Exodus 34. So the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God is not a New Testament concept. It is a biblical concept that we see as God's attributes displayed all throughout the Bible. Um, So grace can be defined as being a perfection of God's character, which has no relationship to an object. So that is who God was and would be even if there were no creature. God is gracious eternally. He is eternally and perfectly gracious even if no one ever existed. It's important to think about because most often we think of God's grace uh, simply in terms of his relating to mankind, which is glorious and at the heart of the gospel, uh, but God is gracious despite our existence. It is part of his character. So he's a compassionate God who would be capable of manifesting his grace to creatures apart from any merit. And we see the heart of this is exactly what, um, what his character is all driving at. Uh, were God to bestow on man what he rightly deserves as a result of original sin, the sin that we inherit from Adam, and uh, our nature of rebellion as a result of that, nat- of that um, original sin, all of us would be justly destroyed, and yet God would remain eternally gracious. Um, but God has chosen man to be the unique recipient of his grace according to his divine foreknowledge and decree. God very easily could have said, man was created in my image, man screwed it up, I'm destroying man, and I'm showing my grace to giraffes. And all of my grace will be shown to giraffes eternally. Um, He had that option. Um, but he didn't. Even though man decidedly rebelled against him, um, God nevertheless chose man to be the recipient of his grace. So God's grace can be spoken of in two very unique ways. Uh, The first, which has been um, mentioned tonight, is the common grace of God. The common grace of God. You don't hear about this often. Um, There was a period of time theologically where common grace sort of fell off the map and people didn't want to talk about the common grace of God. Um, But um, some of the older theologians, particularly uh, the early Reformed theologians um, um, and most prominently John Calvin, um, had a very high view of the common grace of God. And I don't know how we explain a lot uh, within the world without an understanding of God's common grace. It's a very important concept for us to understand. The common grace of God is that grace which is shown to all men indiscriminately. It is, um, um, if we think of it in terms of God's love, it is his beneficence that he is, um, he is showing to the believer and the non-believer alike a certain type of grace. Um, unlike Arminianism, Reformed theology does not consider common grace to be a part of what we call the ordo salutis, which is the order of salvation. So as we speak of the order of salvation, what we're talking about is a way that we can understand how God goes through these certain um, steps, I guess we could say, this order by which we come to salvation. Um, there's a big difference between what uh, we understand that to be as Reformed people versus what someone like 
an Arminian would believe. So, uh, for example, we believe that we must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit prior to being able to express faith in Christ. If I'm dead in my transgressions and sins, I can't have faith. (laughs) I have to be regenerated, my eyes open to see that now I can understand my sinful condition, my need for redemption, and then I can express faith that has been given to me as a gift of God. The Arminian would say, and the semi-Pelagian would say, that I have faith, and then after I express faith, then I'm regenerated, and from there, the rest of it carries on a little bit differently. Um, So, the Arminians would speak of a kind of grace that they call prevenient grace, Uh, which we outright deny. Uh, But that is a grace, they say, is shown to all men, and some men receive it, and some men reject it. Whereas we say, no, there's a common grace of God. It's not part of the order of salvation. It is simply a common benevolence that God shows to all mankind. Um, And so we'll make the distinction here in a minute. Um. Common grace makes man aware of the law that is written on his conscience. And what we would say is that because of that, it does play a significant role in the Holy Spirit's work to bring us to a knowledge of sin and our need for repentance. Because we have the law of God written on our conscience as those created in the image of God. Um, By God's common grace, he makes that known to us. So the very reason why a non-Bible-believing, God-loving culture um, like our own (laughs) would have laws against murder. Why, why do cultures that have nothing to do with God have laws against murder? Because the law is written on their conscience and the common grace of God is um, making that known, that this is a moral um, element that needs to be observed. Um, so, <coughs> turn my page, there we go. Um, <laughs> Some theologians reject the language of common grace, but the overwhelming consensus is that God's grace extends to all mankind in a general sense and gives explanation to several things. The restraint of sinful behavior. No evil person in the world is as evil or acting out and working out all of the evil that they possibly could within their heart. The common grace of God is restraining that. Every one of us has, in our natural state, apart from regeneration, has the capacity to be the next Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini. And, um, you know, our initial reaction to that is, that's preposterous. I would never. Oh, yes, you would. (laughs) You would. It's by God's common grace that, that that's not the case more often. And even that, we can look at these tyrants of, uh, of history and say that they only scratched the surface of what they were fully capable of had God allowed it to go to the full extent. So God restrains sinful behavior by common grace. Um, he gives a universal knowledge of God by common grace. Um, and that is through general revelation, through nature itself. And we speak of common grace in the development of science and art and beauty in general, music, those sorts of things. Now, we can, we can look at carnal men. Um, I'll use uh, Steve Jobs as a good example. Steve was a professed uh, Buddhist um, off and on when he decided to be. Um, actually, I read a really interesting thing recently that he, didn't, he never put any switches on any of his devices that said on-off because he thought that um, that reminded him, every time he saw an on-off switch, it reminded him of um, life is lived, and then it just turns off. And he didn't want to be reminded of eternity. He didn't want to be reminded that one day he was going to die. 
So there is a power switch on all of his devices, but not an on-off switch. And you will never see on any Apple device something that says on-off. Um, <coughs> but we can look at a man like that and say the guy was, um, in many ways, a genius. He developed some pretty incredible things and has um, he, he really has um, changed the trajectory of uh, the 21st century in a lot of ways. Uh, that wouldn't have been if had he not existed and created all of all the things that um, he created and all the things that I use in my daily life because of him um, are as a result of the common grace of God. Much of the music we listen to and enjoy, the movies we watch, um, all of these things are God's common grace. The medicine we take, uh, the doctors we go to see. Um, if you need a brain surgeon, you want to find the best brain surgeon in the world. Your question is not, is he a Christian? Your question is, does he know what the heck he's doing? <laughs> um, and I will go to him and see him, and I can trust that by God's common grace, he's given this person the knowledge and the understanding that is necessary in order to complete what um, I am here to receive. So we can thank God for his common grace uh, in many, many ways. Um, quote from Louis uh, Burkhoff. He says, How can we explain the comparatively orderly life in this world, seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? Think about that. If all of creation lies under the curse of sin, how do we account for the fact that right now here on Goshen Road, cars are passing by one another all day long, and one person doesn't see the other and say, Eh, I don't like that guy, and just run him off the road. And that not happening a thousand times over in the rest of the world. How is it that the earth yields precious fruit in abundance and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles? Remember, all of creation is under the curse of God, not just mankind. And yet we still can grow plants that flourish and provide us with nourishment. How can we account for it that sinful man still retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and good behavior? What explanation can be given of the special gifts and talents with which natural man is endowed, and of the development of science and art by those who are entirely devoid of the new life that is in Christ Jesus? How can we explain the religious aspirations of men everywhere, even of those who did not come in touch with the Christian religion? How can the unregenerate still speak the truth, do good to others, and lead outwardly virtuous lives? Common grace. And that is it. And so when you meet someone who says, I'm a good person, by all means we can say, you know what, you probably have some many virtuous things about your life. You probably do a lot of good deeds. Uh, you may be very philanthropic. You may uh, serve in a lot of different ways, but you are still under the condemnation of God. You only do these things as a result of God's common grace towards you. There's still the need for saving or special grace for redemption. John Calvin, since he is probably the most prominent writer on the common grace of God. I had to quote him. Um, but he speaks of man's pursuit of virtue in this way. He says, those virtues are not the common properties of nature, but the peculiar graces of God, which he dispenses in great variety and in a certain degree to men that are otherwise profane. For which reason we hesitate not in common speech to call the nature of one man good and of another depraved. Yet we still include both in the universal state of human depravity. But we signify what peculiar grace God hath conferred on the one with which he hath not designed to favor the other. So I think um, this, is, this is a great uh, point that he brings up. That when I see a carnal man doing something of worth, that I don't look at it and say he's talented or skilled or, you know, he's come about this by virtue of his ability to attain it. But I look at it and I see it is God's grace in this sense that he's able to do that. 
So my brain surgeon is able to be my brain surgeon and know what he knows and do what he does because of the common grace of God, not because this man just in and of himself naturally attained these virtues or abilities. So, which, again, this, this just builds, I hope, it helps us build even more our understanding of how big and <laughs> all-encompassing God is in all of creation that we continue to build this out even among the unbelievers of the world. So it can be said that while no wise salvific, God's common grace does not save, the common grace of God is that which explains the benevolent blessings of God upon all mankind, the restraint of evil, uh, the enrichment and betterment of life on earth through the arts and sciences, all of those things, and his suppression of the true nature of depravity within all of mankind. Um, great. Well, let's look at um, any questions about common grace first. Or thoughts. Okay. Well, we also obviously and most prominently speak of the particular or the saving or special grace. You see all of these descriptions. Particular saving or special grace of God. Now, this is what's most often referred to when we talk about God's grace. Um, It is the free favor of God exercised toward his elect who have no merit within themselves and who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. We don't deserve God. We don't deserve his benefits. And in fact, all we deserve is hell. And yet God has freely, without calling us to reciprocate with works, bestowed upon us his saving grace. Um, Now there's two ways we speak of it. First, we speak of it as a gracious gift. All of the benefits of God toward mankind are derived from the perfection of God's character. We've said that time and again. So grace is a gift from God, and it is rightly described as such, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.9, so that no one may boast. And the Bible describes the grace of God as a gift to man in many different ways. Let me give you three examples. Uh, Philippians 1.29 and I admit this is my translation of this verse because I wasn't pleased with any that I saw. Um, but I wanted to bring out this, uh, this element of um, what the text is saying. For it has been graciously granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but suffer for him as well. So the point here being that... It has been graciously granted to you or given to you. It's a gift. Same language in Romans 11, 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's Paul's statement. And Romans 3, 23, which most people know, but they don't carry on into 24. (laughs) For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as what? A gift. Through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. So the Bible repeatedly uses this language that grace is given to you, it's not by works, and it is a gift from God. So very... Uh, important distinction. So we speak of grace as a gracious gift. We also speak of grace as a gracious receipt. Grace, both common grace and particular grace, have specific benefits for the one receiving it. But most notably is the grace of redemption. Um, The gracious, gracious receipt of uh, of grace is most prominent in Paul's theology but um, it's certainly present in all of the other biblical writers. But I'll give you some examples from Paul's writing. Romans five fifteen and 16. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So you see, Paul identifies the gracious gift of grace and the gracious receipt of justification following many trespasses. So the gift is grace, the receipt is justification as a result of grace. Um, Romans 3.23 again, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, so here's grace as a gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, the receipt. Grace given as a gift, grace um, eternal life in Christ Jesus received. So you see them at play there again. Uh, Romans twelve three, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say. So Paul is the recipient of a gracious gift. So it was given and it was received. Um, and you see that time and time again throughout Paul's theology. You see it time and again throughout all of Scripture, really. So, man, that was right on time. Um, any any thoughts or uh, questions? I, I want to, I don't, um, I'm not going to go further in terms of dealing with the theology of grace because, as I said, specifically dealing with redemption, it will come up again. Um, but uh, any thoughts or questions for you on grace at all tonight? Yeah, you're talking about common grace. Mm. Yeah. You still could not take another man's property. You could not take his possession. Um, and there, there were several other laws they had that were direct moral laws. Yeah. But they had none. I mean, they definitely worshiped the false gods. Oh, sure. But there were certain things that, okay, we know in our heart we cannot do this. This is wrong. We can't explain why it's wrong, but it is wrong. Sure. Yeah. Well, and you see that often as you go to different cultures throughout the world. They'll display certain aspects of God's moral law, but certain others are kind of out the window. But to see any of them at all is just amazing. The fact that at any level they would say, well, we can and can't do this. Well, why? (laughs) It's a great, this is probably the most effective means of evangelism is dealing with this aspect of the moral law. Um and cornering someone who says something is right or wrong. Because what they're doing is they're, uh, you know, I, I would tell someone, well, you're stealing my worldview. My worldview is that these things are right or wrong, and it's based on an objective standard that God has given to me. You're basing it on the common grace that God has shown you in writing his law on your conscience, but you won't admit that. So you can't use my worldview to argue your position. So I'm going to take your car which our society calls stealing, but you can't think that's a bad thing because you have no objective standard on which to base that. Um, and you could go through all of the Ten Commandments and do that same thing. I like your wife. Um, <laughs> that, that's the way to get, the, um, get their dander up quickly. <laughs> um, you know, <coughs> well, that's true <laughs> because they are carnal man. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Please, take her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anytime, anytime someone who's a non-believer that I'm evangelizing is, is using moral language from the moral law of God, I'm very quick to want to deal with that element of it. Well, you're, you're making a biblical statement, but you say there's no objective truth, there is no objective standard of God that we should adhere to, so... What are you appealing to? Where do you understand right and wrong to be coming from? Um, we know it is God's common grace to show that to them. It's written on their conscience. But if they don't want to admit it, then I'm going to pin them in a corner and try to uh, help them see that. So, good. Or take their stuff. Or take their stuff and, yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts?
anger and retaliate with, well, it's the law. Yeah. Yeah, and we can keep drilling that down. Well, why is that the law? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you just keep drilling down until you get to the place where it's like, well, this started somewhere. Where did it start? Um, yeah. Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, right. <coughs> yeah, and it's incredible to look at scientific studies that are often done in order to try to disprove the very things that the Bible teaches, and yet they come to those conclusions as a result of God's common grace. Uh which is uh, an amazing thought. So, you know, a good, solid understanding of the common grace of God also keeps us from the Gnostic heresy. It keeps us from looking at the things in the world and saying, do not touch, do not taste, all of these sorts of things. It keeps us from um, having a mentality where everything, um, so, you know, I can't listen to, um, I can't listen to jazz music because, um, it wasn't a Christian who produced it. But I, if I understand God's common grace, I recognize this has come as a result of God um, producing something beautiful that John Miles will never understand. Um, <laughs> yeah, mushrooms and broccoli. <laughs> But the Gnostic, the Gnostic heresy would say, well, it's physical, so it's evil. Don't touch it. Don't have anything to do with it. Only the spiritual. And so it just got, it gets silly, and it bleeds into theology and the nature of Christ and all this. But, um, but God, you know, I think Ecclesiastes really speaks to this uh, prominently, that God has given us things in this world to enjoy rightly within their right context. So eat and drink and be merry, but do so according to what God has commanded. Don't overdo it. Uh, don't go beyond the bounds of moderation and, um, you know, good wisdom. Um, so anyway, I think common grace plays into that a great deal. Um, and, it, and we read it throughout the scriptures. So, all right. I, I sufficiently went over time. I don't feel right if we end right on time, so I had to talk a little more. Um, John, would you mind praying for us? Thanks.